I'm going to continue on in our ongoing study um, through the book of Exodus. Um, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up um, to the chapter 7. Um, I have six chapters to make it through this morning, so um, roll tide. Um, so I'll open it up with this. Um, so Piper, um, our daughter, who's now four, she's getting at the age where she's super vocal. Um, she's getting real vocal these days. Um, some in some cute ways and some in not so cute ways. Um, and so sometimes she'll get the nerve built up in her and go out on a whim when me and her mom tell her to do something. And she'll look up at us and she'll just say, No. As in, you're not the boss of me, I'm my own boss. And in those moments, I have to remind myself of passages like Psalm, Psalm 51. In, in, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. Ephesians chapter 2. You are by nature a ch- child of wrath, so I don't lose my mind on my kid. Okay, it's, it's those scriptures that remind me to not lose my ever-loving mind. And, but here's the deal. This is the natural human way of life, even if we don't say it aloud. We naturally resist being told what to do. Um, In a fallen state, this is the natural way. The way of resistance is the natural way for us. Do you see this playing out in your own life? Do you respond when, how do you respond when God tells you what to do? Are you resistant? And that is exactly where we find ourselves this morning in the book of Exodus. Pharaoh, the deity of the land, the one who gave the orders and demanded submission, not the other way around, until Moses and Aaron come on the scene with a message from the Lord. And we saw last week in chapter 5, verse 1, Moses, uh, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and, he, and they tell him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. To which Pharaoh responds, Who is the Lord that I should obey Him and let Israel go? I don't know who the Lord is. I will not let Israel go. And here's the deal. Authority is linked to the one giving the command. Okay, There's a chain of command in Egypt, and Pharaoh sits at the top. Not the Hebrew slaves, and not the Hebrews' God. And in our passages today, Pharaoh finds himself ultimately waging war with God. Uh, with, with God, not Moses, as he refuses to obey the command of the Most High God. And we see God making Himself known for generations to generations to come in at least three ways that I want us to look at this morning. The first is this. Actually, hold on a second. We'll get to that in just a second. Let me, let me preface it with this. So we're going to see three attributes um, that God's going to teach us about Himself in this text. And it, instead of getting into the nitty-gritty, because I just don't have time, I want to look at the overarching theme of the why of the plagues. Why did God strike Egypt with these plagues? So the identity and authority of God are revealed through the words of Aaron and Moses and by the power of God's sovereign hands. These plagues are poured out on Egypt so that they may know that I am the Lord, says God. But the question begs to be asked, why the first nine plagues if the tenth plague was the one that that broke the camel's back? Why do we need the first nine? And we find the answer from the mouth of God in chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. It says this, for by, now I, for by now I could have come and put my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. And you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, 
I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And we're going to see this time and time again throughout this section. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when, uh, chapter 7, verse 5. By this you will know I am the Lord, verse 17. So that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God, chapter 8, verse 10. So that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth, chapter 9, verse 14. We see God begin to remove His common grace as Egypt falls into this utter mayhem. And Pharaoh, full of rage, refuses to submit. Refuses. And lest we think in this room this morning that we are unlike Pharaoh in this moment, sin also hardens our hearts. It clouds our judgment. It makes us needy for divine intervention. Who is this God making demands of these high kings of the earth? Who is this God making demands of you and of me in 2022? A.W. Tozer in one of, I think, his best work, The Pursuit of God, he says this line. He said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the single most important thing about us. That's true, man. What comes into your mind when you think about God, your thoughts of God have to do with how you orient your life, how you view holiness, how you view repentance, how you view how the world works. All of that has to do with how we think about God. And I think the text is going to point us to God wants us to teach us a little bit about himself. And so the first thing I think we can see is this. The Lord is the one true creator God. And this is what he's going to teach Israel. And before he even gets into the plagues, he teaches them this through the prelude to the plagues. In chapter 7, verse 8 through 13, if you want to look there, I'm just going to kind of summarize it. So God tells Moses and Aaron to go and to take the staff. Remember, the staff's a big deal. Troy hit on that last week. If, if you haven't listened to that, go and listen to it. It was phenomenal. So the staff is important in the fact that it signified God as the one who was doing these signs and these miracles. But if you note, in, I want you to note in verse 10 something as well before we get into these, uh, the plagues. Talking about Moses and Aaron, they did just as the Lord commanded. I think this is important to note. We're seeing growth in the life of Moses. Remember, this is not how he started out. This is not the brother's story, uh, how it began with, how it began with. So no longer is he trying to convince God that he can't do it, but we see this immediate, immediate obedience to the Lord. And the first time before we even get into the plagues has to do with a snake. And you all, you all know how I feel about snakes, okay? Snakes captivated the Egyptians, though. Pharaoh wore one on his head as a symbol of power and of authority. And snakes captivated them, um, but they also feared them. And it would make sense that Pharaoh would wear one on his head because he wanted to be feared, right? So he was showing that he had the same authority as they did. They even worshipped snake goddesses. There was a snake goddess named Wajit. That they worship so, but time and time again throughout these plagues, God does signs and wonders to show that He is superior, so that there will be zero doubt in Pharaoh's mind and the Egyptians' mind that He is the one who is superior. And so the text mentions that Pharaoh in this moment summons these three groups of people, and I want to note this because this is very interesting. He gets these three groups of people to go and respond to this miracle on their own. Remember, Moses and Aaron throw down their snake, uh, their staff on the ground and it turns into a snake. Well, 
Pharaoh wants these guys to replicate it. So he calls the wise man and the sorcerers and the magicians. So during this time, the, uh, the title for a priest in Egypt was a magician, this pagan priestly figure. They served Egypt's pantheon of gods. And so they throw in this moment their staffs down on the ground, and they also turn into snakes. This is super creepy, okay? Now, there's a lot of questions that could be asked about these occult practices. How, how are they able to replicate this? We're going to see that they're also able to replicate the Nile into blood and also replicate the frogs coming out of the Nile. How, how does this work? How are they able to replicate this? Well, it's obviously debatable. Um, some uh, theologians think that they were just skilled illusionists. They were the Chris Angels of the day. Um, they could do killer magic shows. Some people thought they were snake charmers. But perhaps I think the best way to look at it is that they were just simply demonic. They're just simply demonic, man. These works were performed, I believe, under the power of Satan. Keep in mind, Egypt is a super dark place. They're polytheistic. They don't want anything to do with the one true God. Egypt is a dark place in touch with dark powers. And Paul reminds us of this reality in Ephesians chapter 6. Paul says that um, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness, against all spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now look, we could get all up into theology of demons, but I'm just going to throw you to systematic theology. That meets on Wednesday nights in this upper room at 6.30. Troy would love to tell you all about demons and how this works within the exodus. I don't have time for it this morning, but what I do want you to see about this is that when uh, Aaron's snake swallowed up these magicians, these pagan magician snakes, what God was showing them was that the Exodus is going to show them that though this enemy has a real influence in Egypt, he is no match for God. He's no match. He's no match. He's just a counterfeit, man. Satan is the mountain mist of soft drinks. He's just not the real deal. I'm sorry if you like Mountain Mist, but it's just not Mountain Dew, okay? And so, and this is just a precursor of what's going to unfold in these plagues. And despite this moment, Pharaoh's heart remains hard. And it's going to remain hard throughout these plagues because he had no feelings for God. He had a cold, dead heart. And I think the best way for me to illustrate what's about to happen in these plagues is this. So when I was around eight or nine years old, my dad uh, went out on a whim and got me a, a little mini bike, like a little motorcycle. And my sister's laughing because she knows where this is going. Um, and so I got this little motorbike. It's like a little Kawasaki 7500cc motorbike. I thought I knew how this thing worked. I didn't need my dad to explain to me how brakes work, how clutches work. I, I, I knew how it went down. I was the king of the, mount, of the motorbike, okay? And so my dad was like, well, all right then, go for it, big, show, big dog. And so during this time, my parents had like these woods, like thick woods next to their house. And uh, <laughs> I get on that motorbike and I'm thinking I am Travis Pastrana. And I was quickly met with the reality that I was just a Johnny Knoxville. And so... <laughs> I get on that, that throttle and just go. And I thought, well, to stop, you just let go and it just stops. That's not how it works, okay? I was wrapped around a tree just like that, okay? 
And so I say all that to say the same is going to happen for the pharaohs and the Egyptians and how they thought the world worked. They thought the world worked through their deities performing different acts to, to, to make everything work together. And God's about to take their worldview and completely flip it upside down. And so, go ahead and throw that up. That, yeah, this chart. And so, if you want to take a picture of this chart, go for it. Um, and so, I want, to, I want to throw this up there because I'm going to fly through these, um, these plagues. But I want you to note on this chart how the plagues kind of break down. I have Moses and Aaron's obedience play out so you can see that consistent theme um, going on. God's power over Egypt's gods, the counterfeits, what they could replicate and what they couldn't replicate. Uh, how Pharaoh's heart is hardened moment after moment. Um, these moments of Pharaoh's false repentance. And also, lastly, the distinction of Israel, because some of these plagues didn't affect Israel. And so I put that up there as well. So, y'all ready? We're about to tackle ten plagues in five minutes. Let's do this. All right, the first is this, the Nile to blood. So this is a big deal. The Nile was Egypt's water source. This is the lifeblood of Egypt. The equivalent to the, the Nile being shut off or unusable, being turned into blood, is the equivalent to America having their oil supply cut off. This is a big deal. Um, there's no clean drinking water. It's, it's like the stock market crashes. There's utter mayhem in the land. And everything in the Nile is starting to die. And there's a Thank smell. Like all the fish are starting to float. There's no life being given. And in this moment, God is showing His victory over the pagan Egyptian gods of Osiris and Nu and Hopi, these gods of fertility that these Egyptians worship. And it's really interesting to note that God took life from their gods who were supposedly bringing life, right? And so somehow, some way, the magicians replicate this plague. Number two, frogs. Frogs are everywhere. They're everywhere. They're all over the place. They're in the houses. They're in bedrooms. They're in ovens. They're in pantries. They're all over the place. This would have been a hillbilly's heyday for frog legs, okay? Like, all you can eat frog legs over Egypt. They'd be everywhere. And so in this moment, God's showing His victory over the Egyptian fertility goddess Hecate. Because Hecate would have had a frog head. They would have worshipped this goddess with his frog head. And this, this plague is particularly funny because frogs were so sacred in Egypt that the Egyptians couldn't kill them. So not only are they overrun, but they can't do anything about it. They're like, they're freaking out. These deities supposedly controlled the frog population, so this was God's way of showing the Egyptians that he was smacking around their weak gods. In some way, somehow, these pagan magicians replicated this again. Again, go to systematic theology, and Troy will explain that to you. Um, Number three, gnats. This could have been mosquitoes. Theologians want to debate about it. Either way, it's some form of an annoying bug. Okay, um, And so this is possibly an attack on the earth god Jeb. When God turned the dust into bugs, this challenged the Egyptians' trust in the dirt and the god of the ground. And this is where the pagan magicians bow out. <laughs> They're like, I am done. Okay, these, these magicians who have been able to replicate these signs and these wonders... They go to Pharaoh, and if you go and look in chapter 8, verse 19, they say, surely this is the finger of God. We can't do, I can't do this, man. There's, I'm out. I'm tapping out. And so, number four, 
flies. Some more flying bugs. So at this point, you're probably thinking, is Alabama under a plague from the Lord? That's a good question to ask. I don't know the answer. So the swamp bottom ain't got nothing on ancient Israel in this moment. And this is the first time in this plague, with plague number four, that we see a distinction from Israel and Egypt. This one falls particularly on Egypt alone. And it didn't go over to the Israelites in Goshen because this was a picture of the salvation that was to come through Passover which we'll get to in a minute. And some people, and I want you to note this about these plagues, some theologians call these plagues moments of decreation. Decreation. Rather than order coming from chaos, like we saw back when we went through Genesis in chapter 1, there's chaos descending from order. And so you see, no longer does man have dominion over the beasts of the field. No longer longer does... uh, is the sky and, and stuff working with, with, our, with the betterment of humanity. No longer is, is the light uh, supposed to be light outside. It's, it's darkness. It's just madness. And here's the deal. If our God has the power to create, He also has the power to decreate. And so, this was an attack on the Egyptian god Kafir, which was the, uh, the god of resurrection who was depicted as a beetle, learning, leaving the Egyptians to learn that only, there's only one true god that has the power to resurrect. Number five, the death of the livestock. Can you imagine, for just a second, going down Rose Boulevard, you smell the roadkill, right? And it's, it's horrible, just from one animal. Can you imagine the stank smell in Egypt with the loss of every livestock that was in the field? How bad this must have stank. Uh, So the entire nation's livestock that was out in the field was struck dead. Again, in uh, in this plague, God spared Israel as well. The Egyptians had all kinds of sacred cows. All kinds. And many of their deities were depicted as livestock. Many worshipped the bull gods like Apis and Menevis, which then leads us to the question uh, with the golden calf later. Like, is the golden calf rooted in this pagan worship? Which we'll get to that later on. Uh, But God was crushing these gods before their very eyes. Boils, number six. This one hit the pagan magician priest right in the face. It was customary during these times for these priests um, to throw up ashes in up into the air as a sign of blessing. And here's what's interesting. The Lord takes these signs of blessing in the moment from these pagan priests, and as they throw up these ashes, the pegging, the, the blessing, I just turned pagan and blessing into a word, that's cool. The, the, the blessing turns into a curse. And so there's these sores that break out all across the Egyptians, and they're, they're, these pagans everywhere. And this attacked their gods of healing from Amun-Ra and Toth, and these false gods couldn't bring healing to the Egyptians. Number seven, hell. This is the worst hailstorm in the history of hailstorms. The Israelites were safe again from this over in the land of Goshen, and the Lord even warned the Egyptians. We see grace play out here to the Egyptians. The Lord even warns the Egyptians that it was coming if they wanted to protect their livestock and their slaves from the hell. And we're not sure which god, Egyptian god, this was an attack on, but they had plenty of deities that they worshipped that were over the elements. They had atmosphere gods, they had sky goddesses, they had earth and wind gods, but they were no match for the god 
of Psalm 148 that says, Lightning, hail, snow, cloud, all execute when He wishes. And so He's flexing His deity. Number eight, locusts. This hits everybody. And for good reason. The text tells us that this hit the Egyptians and Israelites so that the Israelites could tell their grandkids how the Lord dealt with Israel. From generation to generation, they would be proclaiming this. And so this one is so bad that Pharaoh's servants come to him like, bro, please let these people go so this can end. This is crazy. This is nuts. Just let them go. And yet he continues to harden his heart. He wasn't going to listen. He wasn't going to let them go. The locusts ate all their crops, and this was a slap in the face to the deity of men, their patron god of crops, the uh, goddess of life, Isis, Nepri, the god of grain, Anubis, the guardian of the fields, Shinnaman, the protector of the pest. They all fell horribly. And then number nine, darkness. Nothing communicates judgment quite like darkness and death, right? God wanted the Egyptians to feel the darkness. He wanted them to feel it. And so the Egyptians, by the darkness, they were weak and immobilized. And keep in mind, during these ancient times, all travel had to be done during the day. They didn't have like KC lights that they could throw on their camels and plug those bad boys in so they could go all about Egypt. That ain't how it worked. And so we see we have three days of pure darkness to where they can't even see their hand in front of their face. They're they're immobilized. God's showing them their weakness in this moment. And this was the cold precursor of the death that was to come. They would have been terrified. The Egyptians would have been utterly terrified of the darkness because they worshipped the sun. See, in Egyptian culture, sunset represented death to them. And the sunrise offered the the hope of resurrection to come. And Pharaoh himself was known as the son of Ra, the incarnation of Amun-Ra. He was the biggest deal of Egypt's gods. And in this moment, he is completely immobilized. Little did he know, though, what was coming for him in the tenth plague. And I want you to note, these plagues were an all-out attack on Egyptian theology and their gods. And in victory, they reveal that the Hebrew God is the sovereign ruler over all the creation. Remember, I am doing these things so that they will know I am the Lord. That, that Lord is the same. The I am. The I am that I am. The, the, one, the existing one. I was there before you formulated these false pagan deities in your mind. I'm going to show you that I am the one who's pulling all this together. And so the second thing that I think we can see in these plagues that God's teaching us about Himself is the Lord is the one righteous judge of all. So all these plagues represented God's mighty hand over creation. But also that He is the just judge who takes sin very, very seriously. And I want you to note this because I think it would do us well to remember Pharaoh's false repentance. We see it after the plague of frogs, the plague of hell, and the the plague of locusts. And I want you to go back and study that this afternoon. And, And with Pharaoh, it's almost like he's in this bartering system with God. He's like, if you remove this, I'll I'll do this for you. Does that sound familiar? Y'all ever been there before? 
However, Pharaoh never followed through with his hard heart. Pharaoh wanted the reprieve without the repentance. He wanted the release. He wanted the, he wanted the freedom without repentance. And this is a good thing for us to note in 2022 in this room. Mouthing off religious jargon is not sufficient for salvation. Yes, does God hear your prayer of genuine repentance? Yes, He does. Yes, He hears our cries for mercy and grace in times of need. However, He sees right through our false repentance. 1 Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the what? The heart. He sees right through it, man. Sees right through it. So I think it would do us well to note what's wrong with Pharaoh's repentance in this moment. First thing I think we can see is this. He doesn't truly confess his sin to the Lord. If you look in chapter 9, verse 27, even when he does confess, he minimizes his sin by saying, well, this time, as if like the sin of the mass genocide of Hebrew boys wasn't a big deal or the fact that you worship a million deities isn't a big deal. He minimizes his sins as if what's been done by him prior wasn't a big deal to the Lord. He looks for relief, but he wants to remain in the captain's chair. Number two, he doesn't turn away from his sin. Church, there is a big difference between remorse and repentance. There's a big difference. Repentance is a turning away from sin, not just feeling a little bit bad about it. And I say, I stop, I I put this in here this morning because I think it's, it's huge. The Lord is the one righteous, just judge of all of us. And we should be aware, be aware of false repentance because false repentance is a fast track way to a hard heart. It just is. And so the, next, the last thing I think we can see is this. The Lord is the one merciful and gracious to save. This is chapters 11 and 12. All right, so now God has sent plague after plague in the first nine, displaying His sovereign power and over creation and Egypt's puny gods that they had formulated in their minds. And what Egypt should have done in this moment was to bow their knee to Him in repentance and to, and to join Moses and Aaron in the worship of the one true God, Yahweh. But the more Pharaoh suffered, the more solidified and hard his heart became. His heart was captured and his heart was committed to serving foreign gods. And God had shown his power over the river gods, the field gods, the sun god, the sky gods, and yet Pharaoh still refused to let the people go. Remember, this battle is between Pharaoh and God, and Pharaoh was destined to be crushed. And so God tells Moses, This in chapter 12, verse 12. For I'm going to pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And with this final plague, God would accomplish His his objective to show His lordship over Pharaoh and the Egyptians by defeating all their gods and the demonic powers that they represented. 
And in one fell swoop, don't miss this connection, in one fell swoop, God executed what Pharaoh would thought would amass him power in the mass genocide of Hebrew boys that we saw in Exodus chapter 1 in the death of all firstborn of man and livestock throughout Egypt to display his sovereign power and his justice over them. And so there's crying out all over Egypt in this night, the next morning. And Pharaoh was met with the reality of this plague and the loss of his firstborn, of his son. He lost his son, the one who was going to take his place. Keep in mind, firstborn children in this culture are a big deal. It's a big deal to be a firstborn. And now his firstborn is lying lifeless in his arms. Now, I want us to look at this. What God did to the polytheistic Egyptians in this moment, is not really any surprise, right? He's executing His just judgment on them. But what is shocking is the mercy and the grace that He extends to Israel. So the night of Passover, God brought death to the home of every, every home in Egypt, including the homes of Ezra, every Israelite, with the purpose of killing the firstborn. And you know, I'm sure the Israelites over in uh, were, were shocked to find out that they were, their lives were in danger. You know, their kids' lives were in danger. You know, keep in mind, through the, some of these big plagues, they were unharmed over in the land of Goshen. These big, these big harsh plagues. And I'm sure, you know, some of them probably got the mentality, like the, higher, the, the mightier, uh, holier-than-thou mentality, like, hmm, really stinks for those guys over in Egypt. You know, like, if only they could be a Jew, you know. <laughs> you know, I'm sure some of them got that mentality. But this final plague taught the Israelites about their sin and about God's salvation. See, the Israelites, they had sinned in many ways. They were just as guilty of idolatry. How do I know this? Keep in mind, the Israelites had been in Egyptian captivity for hundreds of years. I'm sure they bought into the lie of these these polytheistic deities. And I actually know they did because Joshua 24 verse 14 tells us, Put away the gods your father served in Egypt and serve the Lord. So they had bought into this polytheistic idolatry. Not only that, but they were sinners by nature. Romans 3, what does Paul tell us? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so the reason the angel of death visited the Israelites as well was because, the Egypt, because like the Egyptians, they were sinners and sin is a capital offense to God. And the payment for this penalty is death. Death had to happen. And it's been that way since Genesis chapter 3. It hasn't missed a beat. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is what? Death. Guys, death has not missed a beat. And it's not going to miss a beat. And the tenth plague was a sign of God's judgment against humanity. And this is a reality that we all must face as well. If we all have sinned, that includes us in this room. And if death has spread to all men because all have sinned, Romans chapter 5, then that means that we have a big problem. And we will never come to grips with the need of our salvation until we wrestle with the reality of our damning depravity. That's just true. And we are guilty as charged. But God, but God, what God's people needed was to understand substitutionary atonement. 
that God provided for them in the form of a lamb to be offered as a sacrifice for sin. Look with me in chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. It says this in verse 1, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months, and it shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And so each household in this moment for this final plague was to choose for itself its own lamb, specifically a yearling. It had to be a yearling lamb, and it had to be perfect. The lamb that was chosen had to serve as a sacrifice for sin, and the only sacrifice that is acceptable to a holy God was one without blemish. It had to be pure. It had to be whole. It had to be spotless. Why? Because God is holy, and nothing with blemish can be in His presence. And so, continue on with me in verse 7. And then they shall take some of the blood, and they will put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts, that you shall not let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. This is the manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast and on all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And so the Passover meal was to serve as an annual reminder to the Israelites of what they had suffered under Egyptian captivity. And some of you guys might have been here for when we did this uh, for the Maundy Thursday Seder a couple of years ago. And so the bitter herbs, if you remember, that was to remind them of the bitterness and the pain of Egyptian enslavement and the unleavened bread pointed to the the reality that they had to leave in haste. They didn't have time for the yeast to rise in the bread. And so that's why they they held the unleavened bread. Um, and, And while all these details are important, they are secondary to the killing of the lamb. This was the single most important thing. The lamb would have been brought into the home four days prior for the family to dwell with it, to get acquainted with the lamb. To identify with the lamb. And this was, a point, uh, this was a pointer of what was to come. Of a better lamb who was going to step into uh, the people's reality. To live and identify with them. And to give himself for forgiveness of sins. And there's blood spilling all over Exodus 12. Everywhere. And it begs us to ask the question. What's the big deal with the blood? Like, if, if, if you're an unbeliever, you're probably This is super weird. Like, why all the blood spilling? The blood was both a sign for the Israelites and to God. Look in verse 13. It says, The blood will be a sign for you, and when I see the blood, the blood signified substitution. The lamb had died and was poured out in their place. Remember, 
Sin is a capital offense. And death is the result of a capital offense. Judgment was impending on them. The theological term for this is called expiation. And so that means the, the, the blood that was, the blood made the amends. It wiped clean the guilt of their sin. It atoned for them. Dutch theologian Gerhard de Vos says this. He says, wherever there is slaying and manipulation of blood, there is expiation. And both of these were present in the Passover. The reason death passed over the Israelites and they were spared, not, it was not because they were moderately better than the Egyptians, because they lived a more holy life than the Egyptians, that, that God just wanted to, to give them a break over the Egyptians. No. The reason the Israelites were spared from the angel of death was because they were under the blood. It's because they were under the blood. It removed their guilt of the people. And so when, the, when the, uh, the angel of death got there, in a way he saw that someone had died in this house. The theological word for this is called propitiation. The blood turned away the perfect, just judgment and the wrath of God. And here's the deal. Over the centuries, this sacrifice would have been repeated millions of times. And what God requires for salvation was the offering of the Lamb. And it's been that way all throughout redemptive history. However, what God requires, He always gives. Think back to Genesis. We just walked through Genesis. Genesis chapter 22 specifically with Abraham and Isaac. You know, God told Abraham to go take his only son of promise up on the mountain and I want you to sacrifice him. And remember, Isaac was a teenager at that point and he's carrying the wood, carrying the rope. He probably thought something was fishy, like, hey dad, where's the sacrifice at? Like, I don't know why we're going up here without a sacrifice. Whatever. And, and, what, and what, does, what does Abraham tell Isaac? Son, God will provide for himself the lamb for the offering. God provided what he required. The same for the nation of Israel on the Day of Atonement. You can go read about this in Leviticus 16. The high priest would have taken a blemish-free animal into the Holy of Holies where God's presence was to... God presence. His presence dwelt. And he would, take, uh, he would take a knife and he would slit the throat of the animal and he would take the blood and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat for the forgiveness to atone for Israel's sins. God provided what He required. Don't miss this connection. The blemish-free lamb or animal was serving as a representative or a substitute for an individual or groups of people. With Abraham and Isaac... God provided one lamb for one person. With Passover, God provided one lamb for one household. With the Day of Atonement, God provided one animal for the nation of Israel, for one nation. And then we see in John chapter 1, verse 29. (laughs) John the Baptist. He sees Jesus approaching. And he says, Behold, it is the Lamb of God who takes away what? The sins of the world. One lamb for the sacrifice for every nation, tribe, and tongue. Jesus was the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13. And the clear theme of the Scriptures is that whoever wants to meet God must come to God on the basis of the lamb that He has provided. However, 
None of the blood of these animals could atone for sin once and for all. Hebrews 10, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to atone, to take away the sins of the world. So what was needed was a more effectual sacrifice, the offering of a more precious blood. And all the other sacrificial animals and lambs were pointers to the coming of the King of Kings. They were types of what was to come in Christ. The New Testament screams this at us. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Uh, 1 Peter 2, but for Christ to be the Passover lamb, He had to be blemish free. God's standard is perfection, which is why the Scriptures... uh, Mind the scripture is clean in showing us he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Hebrews chapter four. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize within our with us in our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in all the things that we are, yet without sin. You know that he appeared in order to take away the sins, and in him there is no sin. First John three. Pilate before the people talking about Jesus in John chapter nineteen. I find no guilt in this man. Hebrews 9, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God? He's the pure lamb. He's the pure lamb. And not only this, but Jesus was also sovereignly crucified at just the right time during the Passover feast. The day Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jewish historian Josephus says hundreds of thousands of lambs would have been flooding their ways into the city to be the the sacrifice to atone for the people's sins. And they would have, and and Jesus, at his, uh, right before the night before his crucifixion, he settled the, the Last Supper with his disciples and he turns the mill upside down on its head because he's about to usher in a final Passover for the people. This is my body broken. This is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am the true and better Passover lamb that you've been waiting for. And the next day, Christ was beaten and he was nailed to a cross. And all across Jerusalem, during that moment, Israelite dads would have been taking the lambs for their family to walk them through the Exodus narrative to kill the lamb. And remind them of what God had provided in their exodus. Little did they know what kind of exodus was being ushered on a cross on outside on a hill in Golgotha by the true and better Passover lamb whose blood was being poured out. And on the cross at Golgotha, another decreation starts happening. Exodus chapter 9 is not the first place that darkness happens. It happens again at Golgotha. The sky goes dark as Christ is crushed for us. And then the rocks split open. Decreation happening all over. Why? Because no other sacrifice has had this kind of power. None of them. Because this sacrifice wasn't to usher in an exodus from slavery to man. It was ushering in an exodus from the slavery to sin. Which is much bigger. And so, the blood of Christ is just different. It's different. It's a different blood. It's a blood that has the power to justify once and for all, for all who will come and bow their knee to Him and His Lordship. Ephesians chapter 1, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Romans chapter 9, we have been, Romans chapter 5, we have been justified by His blood. 1 Peter 1, 18, you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Church, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin, period. 
So in order to be saved from death, we need a perfect substitute to interpose His precious, blemish-free blood between our sin and God's perfect holiness. And we look at the cross, we see just that. And when the Father looks at the cross, He sees the atoning work of His perfect firstborn Son. Jesus is the substitute and our true and better Passover Lamb. But that's not all. In the last plague, Pharaoh becomes completely unhinged in the death of his son. Remember, Pharaoh, the deity, the God-man of Egypt, his lifeless son is laying in his hands. He's unhinged. And it hit him the hardest. Why? Because he is a deity that has no power to bring back his dead son from the grave. Does God the Father become unhinged in the crushing of His Son on the cross? No. Because it always, always assumed resurrection. Resurrection was always the plan. Ephesians chapter 1, God raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Only the one true God has the power to resurrect. And His blood not only has the power to justify us, church, but also to glorify us. Romans chapter 6, it'll be on the screen. I want to end it with this. For if we have been united with Him, believer, in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have been raised with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. There is power in the blood of Christ. There's power in the blood. Man, come on back up. And so my, my plea with you this morning, unbeliever, I'll start with you first. There's only one way to be saved from sin and being delivered from death. There's only one way. There's only one way to trust in the finished work of Jesus and let His blood do the work for you. It's the only way. It's not about what you can do or what you have done. It's all about Him and what He has accomplished on your behalf. And believer, where do you need to trust in the blood of Christ this morning? Where are you not trusting in the blood of Christ this morning? Where are you not obeying what the Lord is calling you to do? Maybe that's walking in, uh, walking in obedience of baptism. Maybe that's walking in a career change. Maybe it's walking in uh, to reaching out to your neighbor, or your coworker that the Lord's laid on your heart. Where do you need to be covered in the blood? Where are you not believing the gospel in your marriage? Where are you not believing the gospel in your parenting, in your singleness, in your shame? Church, believer, listen. You are not just justified by His blood, but you are also sanctified by His blood. He is molding you into the image of Jesus. And we need to plead the blood of Christ now just as much as the hour that we first believe. And I want to end with this this morning. English poet and hymn writer William Cowper penned these words in 1772. 
There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. They lose all their guilty stains. They lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. So church, unbeliever, believer, grace is available by God's kindness if you just take the plunge. Let's pray. So, Heavenly Father, thank You for a chunk of Scripture. Thank You for the reality that You are the true and better Passover Lamb who stepped into our brokenness to truly atone for our sin once and for all. And not only that, but You sent Your Spirit to to come and dwell in us and to empower us to walk in holiness and walk in a way that is glorifying to You. And so, Lord, would You meet with us in this room this, this morning, now? Would you meet with us? Would you draw men and women to yourself? Would you draw believers to obedience? We pray all these things in Jesus' name.